You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with David Kirkpatrick, Techonomy CEO and founder and author of The Facebook Effect, on why he thinks Facebook's opacity is bad for society. Take a listen. Well, I would say, what response? Yeah. All they've done is tweet. A few mid-level people have done a few defensive tweets. Basically, they have said nothing, which is inexcusable. Honestly, at the level of concern that we are seeing right now, any other company would have its CEO out there talking, certainly Sheryl Sandberg, if not Mark Zuckerberg. But that's just one of so many things we could criticize them for, unfortunately, right now. So we've had you on several times. We're always talking about Facebook controversies. But this one seems to be kind of different. And the market reaction suggests investors think so, too, down at 1.8 percent today. Does it feel different to you as if this is a step up in terms of seriousness and potential threats to the company? Actually, it doesn't, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of the accumulation of all of these issues. I think possibly the reason the market and, and politicians are reacting more negatively today and is because they are now starting to realize this kind of thing is becoming a pattern. Mm. This is a regular wow. problem Facebook is having, and I would argue it's because of failures of systems design that are endemic to the way Facebook has been allowed to evolve. And if that's true, then the stock probably should drop because we're going to see even more such problems in the future. And that doesn't really get contradicted by what they would say in their defense that, oh, this was a violation of rules that were changed in 2015, blah, blah, blah. There are so many rules that are not sufficiently enforced, that are not understood, so many ways data can flow that are not properly governed. There is so much opacity to the way Facebook operates, so much fundamental lack of transparency that society 
is going to keep getting screwed by failures of Facebook systems. And I think that's what we are starting to see evidence here. And Facebook has been slow to respond as well. The thing here, though, is that Facebook is politically vulnerable. And it's not just from, say, Republicans or Democrats. This is a bipartisan effort to really take aim at Facebook and say, you haven't done enough. Well, yeah, I think that's true. You're seeing some politicians in both the UK and the US coming out and, and criticizing them. And I think that will probably continue up to a point, but there's reasons why that might not happen. I actually think Wall Street is what's going to govern Facebook more than government. Mm. And here's one reason uh, people often don't realize. Pretty much every politician in the world who's been elected owes their election in their own mind in part to Facebook. Mm. Because any politician in any country where there's democracy uses Facebook today, probably advertises on Facebook, and they think, wow, if it wasn't for Facebook, I might not have gotten elected. Therefore, are those people going to bite the hand that fed them? I'm not so sure. However, the Wall Street people, even though current today developments are probably driven by the talk of political pushback, it really should be dropping because they're starting to realize if they do or they should start to realize the point I made earlier. The systems have been designed badly or were not designed. They were allowed to evolve in ways that created huge perils. And if that's the case, the company's going to keep getting hit with public and political pushback that will ultimately affect the willingness of advertisers to mm. go there. And we've already seen some degree of underperformance as well since the summer of last year. So I think more and more questions are being asked of Facebook whether or not it's indeed a specific point about this. But bring it back to this story. Let's say, because Cambridge Analytica just put out a statement saying, look, once we realized that the company that we got the data from, GSR, had broken their agreement with them, they deleted all the Facebook data in line in cooperation with Facebook. If we are then proved as a result of Facebook's audit that they asked for the data to be deleted and there was follow-up, and this issue then goes away, do we go back to piling in at better levels in Facebook or is the, the snowball effect here now? beyond this individual point? I think the snowball goes beyond this. I think it's conceivable they're telling the truth, although the evidence thus far does not suggest that Nick's and Facebook Analytica are the most candid organization. Yeah. Um, but if they were telling the truth, if the data actually was deleted, and maybe if it really wasn't used in the election, maybe that would tamp down some of the controversy. But I would continue to make the same point. The uncertainties are a function of the poor system design. We don't know how this system works. Facebook doesn't let us see how it works. Therefore, even though people might have officially agreed to some terms of service for some app and in some privacy, they didn't have their privacy settings set right in 2015, Facebook can have this, you know, hair-splitting defense of itself mm. that people should have known if they'd read the terms of service, blah, blah, blah. That's not acceptable. We don't know how the systems work. Do the advertisers know how it works? No. I mean, they know how it works to their own benefit, but they don't have the answers to these kind of questions. And I think all they know is that it gets them business. And it's a brilliant system for targeting, and it will continue to be that. But at what cost? And if you're an advertiser, the question becomes, what is the associative negative, mm. what is the negative association that you mm. might get by being on a platform that is increasingly reviled by, you know, knowledgeable parties? And, and now I don't think ordinary users of Facebook could care less, does ultimately, face, at Facebook, this point. So that's to Facebook's benefit right now. Does Facebook know how to fix the problems? The evidence would seem to be no. I mean, they talk about fixing things. That's Zuckerberg's vow for the year. Mm. I think the problems inside the way data flows inside Facebook and 
if they you know, are just so great that, that the level of reform required is not something that can be done quickly. Let's say that at a minimum. I mean, just think of the basic thing, like going back to the U.S. electoral manipulation. If they couldn't detect that rubles were being used to buy advertisements that were being used in the U.S. political campaign, they must have very poor controls. They can build a lot of new controls, but they got a lot of work to do. We also spoke with Tina Fordham, Citigroup Managing Director and Chief Global Political Analyst, about politics in the social media age and whether any more elections can really be won fairly. Well, my main reaction as a, as a macro analyst mm. is that the problem of low trust in institutions, yes. um, which is very much related to this Vox Populi risk idea, is only going to get worse with developments like this. Um, then it'll be the next frontier in political science and in opinion polling to try to understand and to quantify what the impact of these ads might be. Because on the one hand, you know, Facebook tells us that you should buy their ads because they're very effective. And on the other hand, we hear that um, uh, that it's, it's impossible to say if there was any impact from these ads in the political space. But in, you know, in my world and anticipating election results, um, it's, it's going to be more difficult. And that at the, you know, the biggest uh, takeaway, I think, is will people believe that any elections are won fairly? Mm. Are corporates, though, like Facebook, like Twitter, whatever it is, whatever company it is that we're giving our data to, are they held to a lower standard because they offer some utility benefit? And in many cases, we're probably quite addicted to them. And so we can't we can't hold them to the same standard as institutions. Well, and what's our, what is our that? alternative as consumers, yeah. right? I saw some people um, on Twitter saying they were deleting Facebook accounts, but what are, what are they going to do instead and All will they migrate them. back? <laughs> I'm curious. That, of them. <laughs> that's a pretty strong statement that we may just never have an election again where people are totally confident that the election was won fair and square. Uh, and and that is probably a casualty of this low trust phenomenon. I mean, it is remarkable when you look at citizens in advanced economies um, and compared to emerging markets uh, when they talk about you know corruption and in in politics and and in business. People in advanced economies are are almost as uh, mistrustful as in uh, developing markets. That's new, by the way. Uh, our trust has declined steadily. Uh, there's probably some correlation there, too, with economic growth. But yes, I mean, um, the, for a democracy, loser has to accept the results. That's the, the only condition yes. <laughs> of, uh, of having a democracy. And peaceful transition of power as well. Yes. Um, as trust deteriorates in public institutions, we're seeing a lot more uh, people in favor of strongmen, authoritarian rulers. Strongmen are definitely back in favor these days. What kind of confrontation do you foresee between big tech, especially the companies like Facebook, like Google, like Amazon, with these authoritarian leaders? Well, I mean, so far they've tried to, uh, to tow a, a pretty careful line. Um, you know, I'm originally from the Silicon Valley, and it took it took the Silicon Valley a long time to get interested in Washington and policy. Yes. And I think the next, the next stage of global leaders um, and how to engage there is going to be challenging as well. This is, you know, this is really a, 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 another frontier in international relations and global business. But there's, a, there's a, a connection there in that for many of these people, I mean, the president himself, President Trump, he actually harnesses social media for his own purpose. So when you're talking about greater regulation, where do those two things meet? And 
Well, I mean, going on a slightly different point, I've been thinking about uh, Brexit and the campaign for the for for it's Leave, which was you know which was roundly criticized for uh, you know numbers that didn't exist and everything else. There's no accountability if you are a company and you engage in false advertising. There's a penalty for that. There, we don't have that. Um, we, we don't have that in in politics and in campaigning. Would you expect to see at some point seriously harsh regulations? I mean. The, the regulations discussed right now seem to mostly be kind of on the margins, things like disclosure of who's buying ads and tighter regulations about who can buy them and where the money is coming from. But at some point, would you expect governments to feel that gigantic social networking companies or, or tech companies are truly encroaching on their sovereignty and that something draconian must be done? I, I don't. Uh, I actually don't see that on the horizon right. at, at this point. Uh, and furthermore, you don't see a public outcry right. uh, suggesting, yes. for example, that Trump won fraudulently. If you see mm-hmm. what I mean, when you look at the comments from Cambridge Analytica and their micro-targeting, which, by the way, President Obama and his campaign right. was was applauded for applying these whizzy new. You think people have a double techniques. standard? No. <laughs> I'll leave that to one side. Um, if things work. Uh, it, it's it's difficult to imagine them being right. withdrawn. It, it's it's the the privacy and the data protection element that I think is probably most significant. Yes. So put this all together. How does this affect how people vote? How people yes. approach for the midterm elections? I think there's a real cognitive dissonance at this point. Um, you just you just don't see. Um, uh, people connecting uh, these headlines with outcomes just yet anyway. Hmm. I saw a super wonky um, statement from an academic uh, research institute because think tanks, remember, have also been kind of roped in under this idea of, of you know, performing tailored work for the benefit of, of governments uh, and also for, for companies. You know, the idea is, what is, the, is there such a thing as independent research? Um, well, like a free press, we would argue that it's extremely important to have independent research and standards, but this is really in the, in the wonky world, I'm afraid. When does the penny drop? When do people suddenly go, actually, are we being duped here and are we being led? And I mean, I think it takes a lot for people to think that Um, most people think that they are making their decisions based on information that they have collected from a range of actively gathered. Yes. But we've been yes. talking about this. They would soon. say other people live in a bubble, but not them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in my case. I'm yes. awake, never mind, wide open. We were talking about this as far as Wisconsin is concerned, and actually people's lack of, of trust in institutions were making them vote for things that were counterintuitive, not having more Medicaid cover. They were voting against that, not seeing greater spending on infrastructure, on roads, on education. They were voting because they didn't trust the institution to, to put the money to work in the way that they were saying they would. And this is a very insidious phenomenon. Yeah. And we actually haven't been here, right? In emerging markets, you know, low, low trust in Brazil has, has been a factor for a very long time, finally culminating uh, in, um, in, in Dilma and uh, the other scandals, uh, Lavajato, et cetera. Real quickly, uh, from a political science perspective, is there any way Trump avoids the midterm curse of having his party get demolished, or is that just sort of one of these iron laws of politics that that will happen? I think the math for a true wave election looks looks challenging, but you know, but we have to remember that wave elections in midterms happen all the time. And remember, after uh, the first Obama term or the Obama victory in '08, uh, you know, commentators said Republicans out of power for a generation, and lo and behold, in the midterms two years later, they wiped the floor with Democrats. Um, 
no responsible pollster is taking a, a you know a strong view at this point on midterms. But I have to think that the Republican establishment is pretty worried about that uh, migration of uh, middle class white suburban college educated voters that we've seen here and there. And finally, we talked with Annie Duke, author of Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. The former professional poker player spoke about making decisions amid uncertainty. She also discussed the difference between men and women when it comes to decision-making and risk. Yeah, I think the idea is that the kinds of decisions we make in life resemble more the kinds of decisions you might make in poker versus say, a game like chess. So in chess, there isn't any uncertainty um, in the sense of there is not a lot of luck involved and you can see where all the pieces are. But in poker and in life, that's not true. There's lots and lots of hidden information. And however the future is going to turn out has a lot of luck involved. So the idea is viewing your decisions as bets, meaning I'm investing some sort of limited resource, time, money, happiness, money, whatever it might be, um, in a decision based on the beliefs that I have on an uncertain future. What are you doing there then? Are you kind of accurately weighting your influences and your biases that might appear and influence that decision incorrectly? Well, you're trying to as much as you can. The thing is that we all have big blind spots to our own biases. So certainly, if you um, enter the world thinking about your beliefs as under construction or in progress, you're going to tend to be much less biased in your information processing. But it helps to have other people check your bias for you. One difference I can think of between real-world decision-making and, say, the poker table is that in gambling, if you have a correct bet 52% of the time, you should always make it. And even if you lose it you know, 48% of the time, you just do it so many times over the course of a tournament or a cash game that eventually it works out. Mm-hmm. But the big decisions in life, whether it's hiring someone or who you get married to or whatever it is, you don't get to repeat those thousands of times and be happy that, oh, it's going to work out 52% of the time. Like, you don't have that luxury. So uh, to what extent does it apply or not? Like, how do you change your decision-making based on that? Yeah, I I think you you don't so much. I mean, in the sense that you can think about over the course of your life, you're making many decisions, thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions. And the idea is just to increase the probability that you have good outcomes from any decision that Mm. you make. Can you run a single decision 10,000 times? No, but over the course of your life, you're certainly making a lot more than 10,000 decisions. So it's in the aggregate. I haven't heard you say anything about luck or fortune, any, any role of that here in the decision-making process, because that comes up a lot. People don't like to acknowledge that there is a lot of luck driving uh, the outcome of their decisions. But how do you pull that out, or how do you, how do you think about that in, in your decision-making process? Yeah, so what I think about is that if, if you can construct more accurate beliefs... And if you have a less biased decision process, what will happen is you'll increase the probability that you have a good outcome. But certainly you never have control over whether the outcome is good or not. I can make a decision that's only going to have, say, a 1% chance of some disastrous outcome, and it can still happen. Mm -hmm. So I actually take issue with this idea of you can make your own luck. Mm. What I think is you can make better decisions and decrease the probability of bad outcomes, but we just don't have control over the luck element. That just is what it is. Can you give us an example? And and what are the obvious blind spots that people have that they may not recognize? Well, one of the biggest blind spots that people have is actually something that is called resulting, uh, meaning equating the quality of an outcome with the quality of the decision. And I think that's because we can see the outcome. We know whether it's good or bad, but we can't really see into the decision process. So a good example would be, say, 
Pete Carroll in 2015, it's the last play of the Super Bowl. He calls for a pass. It's intercepted, which is clearly a disastrously bad outcome. It ends the game and they lose by four. And everybody screams that it's the worst decision in Super Bowl history. But the chances of an interception there over the last 15 years in football was only about between one and two percent. So it was this very small chance that that was going to happen. And maybe we shouldn't have connected those two things together. So he made so the tightly. right call. Well, there are people who argue that he did. I'm not a football expert. <laughs> but I think what we can say is it wasn't the worst call in Super Bowl history, which is what the headlines read the next day. Bill Belichick thinks it was a good call, so I'm going to defer to him. Too bad they couldn't have just played that Super Bowl a thousand times. Right, because then he would have won. How many times the Seahawks But that goes to your point. Most life decisions, you have one shot at it, and right. you have to make the right decision. So. Well, I think what, what, what Pete Carroll would say is he's made many, many decisions mm. as a coach over the history of his coaching career, and that's actually why he ended up in the Super Bowl in the first place, because it does play out over time. Mm. Is there any instance in which emotion or confidence or any of those invariables that we directly influence uh, the outcome is beneficial, Mm. where we don't want to be so dispassionate Mm. when making a decision? Well, I think that imagining regret in advance can be really helpful. I think a lot of times in the moment we can make some pretty reckless decisions and then after the fact, we all of a sudden realize like, oh, if I'd only thought about it. So doing a little bit of time traveling and going into the future, this is a double-edged sword because sometimes we try to minimize regret too much. But we can think like if we're on a diet and we said, I'm not going to eat bread anymore and the bread comes to the table, think for a second about whether you're going to regret eating the bread if you do. And that's true for anything, whether it's investing or you know, driving too fast or whatever it is. Like getting regret into the equation can be really helpful. Naughty question now. Are okay. men or women better at doing Ooh. this? Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> men and women are different at doing this. So um, men are more likely to have a particular bias where uh, really good outcomes are because of skill and really bad outcomes are because of luck. <laughs> women Sorry. can actually um, are more likely to have the opposite problem, which is if they have good things happen to them, they think they got lucky. Hmm. Um, and if they have bad things happen, they think it's their fault. Now, that's, you know, obviously we're talking averages here. It's a generalization. But so I think they're different. It's interesting that you asked about luck and not just. Yeah, that is true. You were just about to. You know, <laughs> Actually, you know what, were. though? That explains a lot and perhaps me, too, and things like that in, in terms yes. of how people yes. interpret yes. what happens. That's why I asked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the techniques that you develop as a poker player is getting information, whether yes. it's reading people or paying up for information in certain ways. How do you apply that concept to real life so that you can improve your odds of making a good bet by having better information than you otherwise would have? So I think that you want to become really information hungry and make sure that you're asking the right kind of questions. So number one is if you express uncertainty, you're more likely to, first of all, be information hungry. So Mm -hmm. if you think you already know something for sure, you don't open up Google. But if you think instead, you know, I'm 82 percent on that, now Google becomes a really big help. Also, if you express uncertainty to other people, they're much more likely to share information with you. So if I say, I just know for sure that the market's going to go down tomorrow, you might not, you know, you might not offer me up alternative points of view. But if I say, I'm really not sure, I'm thinking there's been a downward trend and I express uncertainty, you're more likely to share your information back, which is really helpful because then you, you improve that, um, you know, that belief piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really helpful. The the other thing is to make sure that you're asking questions with what I would call a neutral frame. Mm. I think the market's going to go down tomorrow, don't you? 
that's more likely to get someone. Yes, exactly. We never lead our guests. No, never. Never, right? Just looking at your CV, and you also won a televised championship in rock, paper, scissors. That is And in our meeting today, I was very excited about this. So whether it's that, which is something on its own, or the fact that you were, you know, a poker champion, what facilitated you ultimately in being very talented and winning these kind of competitions because that's an instantaneous decision. There's very little information. Yeah, you can't be honest with someone. Yes. Yes. I know. Well, first of all, there's a lot of luck involved in rock paper scissors. I just want to say that. So number one, there's the woman. Number one, but you know, you're always. I mean, I think as a poker player, you get very trained to kind of try to look for people's patterns, and so it's about trying to anticipate what their next move is going to be. Right. So you're just watching for patterns, and hopefully. Hopefully you guess right, um, and that's kind of the idea there. So, and I think that's true in poker as well. You're sort of yes. betting and trying to get a feel for what what kind of player you are, so that I can anticipate the best way to kind of dig in strategically. Yeah. Final question to you: When do you not use this approach? When do you still make the the mistake of an instantaneous decision that's kind of gut driven and and not one based on all the information you can gather? Right. So the answer is all the time. <laughs> so the the thing about this is this is the way our brains are built, and our goal is not to somehow think that we can become perfect at this and never biased and always rational thinkers. It's to try to be a little bit better at it because if we can increase our decision-making ability by just a few percentage points, the way that that plays out over our lives, over all the decisions we make is going to be huge because it compounds. So the answer is I make these mistakes all the time, just hopefully a little bit less, particularly because I, I kind of am watching for it in the way I think, but also because I have really good people to watch my back. Thanks for listening. This has been What Do You Miss This Week. And don't forget to watch our weekly show, What Do You Miss, on Bloomberg Television from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern each day. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.